All right. Um, there we go. So today we're going to talk about sickness and um, about medicine and how it gets delivered. And um, there's an argument. Some of you may have noticed there's an argument in our country about medicine. <laughs> and I have news that is particularly concerning to me. One side seems to be gaining ground, and it's the side that's wrong. And they have government backing. One of the most important institutions in our country is backing this particular position. And I don't think they're going to admit their error anytime soon. And if this concerns you as much as it does me, then we're concerned together. But I think a lot of people aren't. A lot of people simply, they trust their doctor. But this is an area, this particular concern is a matter where only 6% of doctors are aware of the actual science here. Well, you probably guessed, or at least some of you have guessed, I'm talking about the question of how many snakes are on this symbol. <laughs> See, there's some people who think it has two, but they're wrong. In fact, there is only one snake properly on the medical logo. This is, this is an undisputable fact, and if we follow the science, then this problem would go away. But unfortunately, we can't because... Because some of our government agencies disagree. Now, in the case of ambulances, you see often ambulances have the correct symbol, the right symbol. It's called the it's called the rod of Asclepius, and it's the it's the symbol. It's actually mentioned in the Bible. It is a symbol of a snake, um, a single one, uno snake on the staff, the rod of Asclepius. But the United States Army Medical Health Corps has adopted instead the Two, the two-snake version. Um, it's called the caduceus. And they're wrong. But they've been doing this for 120-odd years, and they're not going to change, I'm afraid. And as a result, when you go online, and you know all the answers to all medical questions can be found with some Googling, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you have discovered that over the last couple of months. So I discovered in, in um, PubMed, the C, I went to the CDC website, and it directed me to PubMed publications that talk about this. And it says, there seems to be no end to the confusion about the so-called medical symbol. The wand with two entwined snakes, with or without wings, has no medical significance. Don't tell me this device has been adopted by the medical department of the U.S. Army and other medical formations. I know, but it's still wrong. Somebody did a survey of doctors and medical students. They surveyed 300 doctors and medical students, and they found only 6% of doctors we're aware of this matter. And in fact, there's just generally very little awareness about the rod of Asclepius being the right symbol and the caduceus being something totally different. So, why do I bring this up? Well, you know the reason. Is that somehow medicine, an arcane issue that really only doctors should care about, has become something everybody has an opinion about. Some of us are in team caduceus and some of us are in team Asclepius. And that means some of us are right, and some of us are wrong. But really, I think we need to ask the question, is this even an area where I'm competent to have an opinion? What do I know about 
ancient cultures and their symbols and things like that. What do I know about Asclepius? What do I know about the Caduceus? And yet we are asked, we are practically forced to have opinions about every aspect of medical care. I said I hope that that you are as concerned about this matter as I am. But my hope as a pastor is that you are as concerned about COVID as you are about this matter. Because ultimately this doesn't matter. And what our faith teaches us is that whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That we have no reason for fear because of what Jesus has done and is doing now in this world. That we are called not to fear. And so what I want to do is I want to have a hard conversation. Hard simply because we have all arrived at positions that we watch the the particular influencers online or um, on TV or we get our news from sites that are are tailor-made to present me with the opinions I want to hear. So I want to have a conversation about the issue of sickness and why we don't have to be afraid of it. Why we as Christians can act in this world without fear of sickness. So instead of looking at what Rachel or Tucker has to say, what I want to do is I want to look and see what God has to say about sickness. So, what does God say? Well, God says don't be afraid. God says don't be afraid of anything, including sickness. And the reason for that is that God rules over every cause of sickness. God did not, I don't know, sit around on his throne 18 months ago, and say, what? There's COVID going on in the world? Oh my goodness, this could be terrible. God was not surprised by COVID. God was not, um, uh, it did not get past him somehow. It was not something he said, wait a minute, that's not in my plan. How did that, how did that even occur? Right? God was not baffled by COVID. God rules over heaven and earth, including sicknesses. So, God rules over every kind of sickness. That's our first point. In the book of Job, which I think really would have been a great... I should have started a 42-part series last year. Um, If I had any idea how long this would take, it would have been a great series because it investigates these issues. Why Why do illnesses happen to good people? Why do people get sick? Why is there evil in this world? It's a it's a great book, and I encourage it to everybody. Um, um, there's there's a great structure to it, and so I want to encourage you to read the book of Job. It's worth uh, reading and meditating on as a devotional exercise. But we begin at the at the very beginning. The thing that the thing that is clear from page one of the of the book of Job is that this misfortune that befalls Job. First, he loses, uh, there's there's things that happen to his family, but then he himself becomes sick. And what is crystal clear in the book of Job is that while those things come from the adversary, the devil, he does so with God's permission. That God, God says, okay, I'll let you do that. And what we can, the comfort we can take from that is that no matter whether we understand it or, or, or how bad our particular affliction is, we know that somehow or another God has permitted this to take place. That God was not surprised by it. God did not lose control for a moment and oops, it slipped in. That God is in control of the world. The adversary struck Job 
with severe sores from the sole of his foot to the top of his head because God permitted it. And God's reasons are often opaque. It's very easy for us to say, well, it's because of this. Well, it's obviously because of that. In fact, that's what happens throughout the book of Job. People are assigning reasons to God. And that didn't stop when the book of Job was written. We see it in the New Testament as well. Jesus is walking along at the temple one day. There's a blind man there. And his disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned? What's the easy explanation for this man's misfortune? He's blind Boil it down for me. Give me an easy explanation that'll put me at ease, and then I won't have to think about it anymore. Was was he struck blind? Was he was he blind from birth because of his parents' sin or because of his own sin? And Jesus answers, neither he nor his parents. This happened so God's mighty works might be displayed in him. Jesus says there isn't an easy answer, that, or the answer you're looking for isn't isn't the right one. That there is an answer, but it is not this one. It is not one of the two you proposed. So God's reasons are often opaque. In fact, I would say they're usually opaque, that we don't usually understand why things happen. Sometimes there are a, a handful of occasions in the scriptures where God is actually not, not the adversary, not Satan, but God is, um, is the cause. That God strikes people despite them being innocent. We read about one example in the the second book of Samuel. Um, we read, The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born for David. David took Uriah's wife Bathsheba and had a child with her. And God struck that child, that perfectly innocent child. God struck him with the disease. David begged God for the boy. He fasted and spent the night sleeping on the ground, but the boy was not saved. That is a very troublesome passage. God has reasons. And they're not always available for us to understand. But even then, if we say, well, just God sometimes does that, that that, that the sin was in this picture somewhere, David and, and Bathsheba, there was sin in there, and so the sin taints everything, and God... God is powerless to overcome that sinfulness. That, that, that easy answer is also wrong. We read in the, um, the book of Psalms about some of the redeemed were fools because of their sinful ways. That this is, this is karma. This is fate catching up with them. You know, you made your bed and now you're going to lie in it. They suffered because of their wickedness. They had absolutely no appetite for food. They arrived at death's gate. They were sick as dogs. And it was their own fault. But what did God do? They cried out to the Lord in their distress, and God saved them. It is extraordinarily difficult to come up with a simple answer and say, well, God always does this in the case of sin or in the case of sickness or in the case of anything else. God's reasons are opaque. And it's very hard for us to say, well, it's because. You know, it says there are some of the redeemed were fools. And they suffered because of their sinful ways. Before I say the next thing, I want to point out, my doctor will tell you I am obese. Okay, and you're too polite to tell me that, but my doctor is not polite. Okay, well, guess what? A whole bunch of us are obese. Okay, this change, every change in color is 5%. And the cooler the color, 
the lower the the rate of obesity in that particular state. Now, in 1990, 1990, less than 30 years ago, 1990, Alaska wasn't measured, but you can see the general the general shape of the United States was was um, that there wasn't as much obesity. as typically uh, an obesity rate under 10% throughout the nation. But in 2017, 2017, look how much the obesity rates have climbed. With, I think, one exception, two exceptions. Everybody here witnessed this. And so when we read about comorbidities and we read about how much more difficult it is for people with those comorbidities to get through COVID, it's pretty easy to say some of the redeemed were fools because of their sinful ways. You know, how many of us have had the doctor tell us, you really need to lose some weight? But God does not simply say, you made your bed, now you're going to have to lie in it. God doesn't say, you deserve this. Instead, they cried out to the Lord, and God saved them. There's a particularly troublesome thing I've been seeing in the in the the news media the last couple of, I don't know, a week or two. It's this idea that people who are unvaccinated should be denied medical care. And I will just tell you, that is unchristian. The very story of Christianity is one of a God who looked at a world full of people who deserved condemnation, who had made their bed, said, but they need my help. And that is what Christianity calls us to do. That it's not a question of whether we deserve it or whether we made good choices. It's a question of whether we need help. And to whatever extent we today can model that in our society, that points to what Jesus did. So, there aren't easy answers. Sometimes God permits things to happen. Sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes God, in at least a handful of occasions, there are listed in the, in the, um, in the Bible, there are a handful of occasions where God himself acts in a way that is very, very troublesome. So, it's very hard to, to kind of get our heads wrapped around this and say, well, what, what am I supposed to think? Why did, why did these diseases happen? Why, why is this happening? It's very hard to get an answer to that. But there is something that we can be sure of, and this is obvious throughout the whole New Testament, which is that Jesus joins us in our suffering. God is not up there moving chess pieces, saying, well, you know, I've got a plan. They have no clue what my plan is, but I'm going to you know, maneuver the knight over here and then put the queen over there. That is not God. Jesus joins us in our suffering. He knows what it is. He knows what it is when one of his best friends got a cancer diagnosis. He knows what it is when his friend is suffering from mental illness. Jesus knows what we go through. In fact, there's a theological debate um, that I was unaware of. I honestly had never given any thought. It's, did Jesus ever get a cold? And there are theologians who say no, because Jesus was the perfect human. Jesus is the new Adam, the one who did not sin, that he was impervious to those E. coli and those spike proteins and all the other things we hear about, that Jesus somehow evaded that. And I hadn't given it any thought, but there are, there's, uh, this will come as a surprise. Theologians are divided on this issue. Um, <laughs> I know, that never happens. But, but there's a real debate. Did Jesus ever get sick? And, you know, I had never given any thought. I assumed he did, right? Jesus got tired. 
Jesus got thirsty. Jesus got hungry. Jesus needed to sleep. So I just assumed, well, Jesus got sick too. Jesus had a runny nose. Jesus had, you know, other problems. But it's not in the New Testament, so it's it's something that theologians are free to disagree over. But whether Jesus himself suffered in that way, we know that he was his ministry was awash in people who were suffering. Every form of illness, we see this over and over again. Jesus joins us in our suffering. In doing so, he reveals who God is and what God is like. In the Psalms, we read that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Jesus came to actually close that distance even further. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those whose spirits are crushed. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, who is Jesus, God's son. And he, Jesus, because he has done that, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead one who is tempted in every way that we are except without sin. This word tempted means he faced the same trials we do. It's not simply, it's like, you know, should I eat that cake or not? Jesus was tempted. He was tried in every way that we are except without sin. And what we see time and time again throughout his entire ministry as it's um, revealed to us in the New Testament is that when people are suffering, Jesus has compassion. Matthew records a story where two men, two blind men called out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus had compassion on him. This word compassion means he was moved in his heart, that that he he felt the way they did, that, that they felt bad and he felt bad because of it. Compassion. He had the same passion. He had the same feeling that they did. Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes and immediately they were able to see and they followed him. So Jesus joins us in our suffering. We may not always understand why God permits the suffering in this world, why people get sick, why people get cancer, why people suffer from mental illness. But Jesus joins us in our suffering and Jesus does something about it. Jesus does something not just about one person who is blind or in Matthew's case, two people who are blind. He doesn't simply heal people onesie, twosie. Jesus is about the work of destroying all disease. Jesus described his own ministry this way. He said, the thief enters only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they could have life, indeed, so that they could live life to the fullest. Jesus wouldn't be content simply you know, with a catch and release. Okay, I healed your blindness. Back you go into a world full of you know, malaria and you know, river blindness, whatever causes blindness in those days, I don't even know, but, but whatever causes blindness today in a world with um, macular degeneration. Jesus is not simply going to heal your blindness. Jesus is healing all the causes of blindness. That's what Jesus' program is about. I came that they could have life to the fullest. Matthew describes one event where Jesus spends the whole day healing people. That over and over, uh, uh, over and over all, all day, people are coming to Jesus. And that evening, people brought to Jesus many who were demon possessed. He threw the spirits with, out with just a word, 
and he healed everyone who was sick. And Matthew says this was not simply a random act of healing, that this was actually the fulfillment of God's promise to put an end to the disease, the the sickness in this world. He says this happens so that what Isaiah the prophet said would be fulfilled. He, Jesus, is the one who took our illnesses and carried away our diseases. He took them away, that they're gone. In, In Isaiah's vision of what God is about, Jesus has taken away our illness. He has taken away our diseases. We may say, well, yeah, but not yet. I've got a friend who's in the hospital right now. I, I have a friend who died from cancer, a friend who's plagued by mental illness. What about now? Yes, someday, you know, in, in the age to come, Jesus will have defeated all, all illness. But what about now? What about the people who are suffering right now? What about Wayne and Anita in the punishment dorm, <laughs> the penalty box? What about them? And again, God resists easy answers. It's like we can we can make speculations about what God's purposes are, but ultimately God's purposes are God's purposes. But God makes an amazing promise. Really, I think honestly, one of the most amazing promises in Scripture, maybe the most amazing promise in Scripture, it is that our suffering is redeemed. In the book of Revelation, it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I've cried a lot this past year. And my guess is a lot of you have cried a lot. And the promise is that God will wipe away every tear. That somehow, in God's the mystery of God's providence, somehow all of our suffering will be redeemed. The promise is not that we'll look back and say, oh, good, you know, it was wonderful. But we will see from God's perspective, or with this perspective we have then, how God was at work in it, and what God did, and the tears will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, including the tears. And Paul says that's not just about people. That's ultimately what what Jesus is doing. He's changing all of creation, that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. God's children have access to his kingdom already, but the rest of creation is waiting, waiting for the to be freed. So, that hasn't happened yet, but there is a promise. There's a promise that awaits us, that in God's time, at the conclusion of this age, God will wipe away every tear. So what do we do in the meantime? We just suffer? We just suck it up and wait it out? Well, Paul writes in, a, in, in Romans 5, Paul says, suffering does lead to endurance, and endurance leads ultimately to hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us. But he doesn't simply say, well, so suck it up and, and live with it. Shake it off. God is not your gym coach. We can still pray because God still answers prayers. And so we can ask God for 
the healing that we will accept. We can ask God anything, and God will answer us. But when we ask somebody for help, they're going to give us their help, not the help we may have in our head. So when you ask God, you have to realize this has to be help you're going to accept. There's a story in John's Gospel. Jesus sees a man at the pool of Siloam. He's been there 37 years, and every time he's tried to get into the pool where he believed he would be cured, some something happens. Other people push him out of the way. He can't get in before the opportunity passes. And Jesus sees him there and says, Do you want to be well? And he says, Yeah, but I want ivermectin. I don't want to have that vaccine. No, actually, he says, he says, no, I can't because other people get in the way and the, the water's stirred up. And Jesus says, do you want to get well? That's the question. If we're going to ask God for his help, will we accept his help when we give it? Eighteen months ago, we were praying for a vaccine. And a year ago, people decided they didn't trust the vaccine because of the administration. And a year has passed, and people still don't trust the vaccine because of the administration. The only thing that's changed is the administration. But the vaccine, five vaccines in record time, is the answer to prayer. And so the question for us is, are we going to hold out for a different answer to prayer? I want coronavirus to go away. Well, the word endemic, which they're increasingly saying, they're saying the pandemic is becoming an, uh, has gone endemic. That means we all have a date with the coronavirus. You're going to encounter it. And the question is, are you going to have a seatbelt and airbags when you crash into it? And that's your decision. I don't give people medical advice, but if God answers your prayer, I don't want to die from the coronavirus, then part of the deal is you have to take God's provision. Do you want to get well? The Apostle James says, Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. These gifts come down from the Father, the Creator of heavenly lights, in, whom, in whose character there's no change at all. That if it is good, if there is a good thing in this world, it comes from God. And so we can look at things and say, I don't like the public health messaging around this. I don't, you know, my friend was watching something on Facebook and then, you know, this other friend, you know. If it's a good gift, then it has come from God. And that God is just as much in charge of that as he is in charge of any other aspect of sickness. Paul himself was surprised by God's answers to prayers. Paul said, I had a thorn in my body. I was given some kind of a thorn. He, you know, probably not an actual thorn, um, but, but something that plagued him. And he said, I pleaded with the Lord three times for it to leave me alone. And he, God, said, mm, no. God said, my grace is, is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. This is the Apostle Paul. 
He wrote a quarter of the New Testament. He introduced a continent to Christianity. After Jesus, he is the most important human in the development of Christianity. And he said, God gave me this thorn to keep me from becoming conceited. If you could do those things, if you could write a quarter of the New Testament, if you could introduce a continent to Christianity, you might get conceited. And Paul said, I see now how God was at work here, that God actually helped me to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul says, I see now that there was something that God was doing there. But at the same time, Paul is reluctant to simply say, there, see, you know, God's will. That God is not one of those people who comes up to you when you're suffering and says, you know, well, God needed an angel. Or the, the terrible things people tell us. Paul talks to the Galatians and he says, you know, I first preached the gospel to you because of an illness. And he says, you treated me wonderfully. But there, where Paul is referring to this church, he is reluctant to say, and I see God's hand in this, that it all works out for the best because God made me sick. I showed up in Galatia. I don't know, we, nobody knows exactly what Paul was suffering from. But the Galatians had mercy on him. They treated whatever was wrong with him. And Paul remembers it fondly. But even that, Paul, is, he, he comes up to the edge, but then shies away from saying, See, everything works out for the best. We have to be very cautious about saying that that there's a silver lining. The promise is that in God's time, all tears will be wiped away. And maybe once in a while, we can actually see how God is working in, in a situation. But we need to be careful, and I think in particular, we need to be careful when we're telling other people, don't worry about your suffering, because God has a purpose here. And for all these reasons, probably the best thing to do is to say, look, I want a cure. I want to be done with this whole thing. I want this. I want that. But ultimately, not my will, but thy will. This is the prayer that Jesus models for us in the garden. He says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not my will, but your will must be done. I don't understand it. It's not what I would have picked. I don't like having thorns in my flesh. And I want to know that if bad things do happen, it's because you're going to redeem it right then and there with the church in Galatia. But a better prayer is to say, I don't understand. Your will, not mine. So, if this comforts us, if this comforts us, and it should, knowing that whatever happens, we are in the hands of a loving God, then the way we thank Jesus is by sharing his healing. We read in Luke's Gospel that when the Samaritan saw the man on the side of the road, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man in his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. This is the model for us. This is what Jesus did. This is the way he describes his own ministry, and this is the ministry he gives to us. He sends out his 12 apostles, and uh, 12 disciples, makes them apostles, and gives them authority over unclean spirits to throw out and heal, uh, throw out the unclean spirits and to heal every disease and every sickness. 
And that was to the twelve. But later on, he commissions the entire church to be about the same work. And in the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul says this, comfort the discouraged. Comfort means to make strong, to add strength to the discouraged, the people who've lost their nerve. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. And in a letter to the Corinthians, we read this. We read that he, God, is the compassionate Father and the God of all comfort. He's the one who comforts us in all our trouble so that we can comfort other people who are in every kind of trouble. We offer the same comfort that we ourselves receive from God. That if we've been given comfort by our faith, we should share that with the people around us. And I don't think that that's happened very much in the last 18 months. I think people have looked at the church and said they are reacting exactly the way the rest of society is reacting. And there's a there, there's a moment for that when we're all kind of reeling and going, oh my goodness, what's happened? But after 18 months, I think we have to say, how are we going to model the kind of comfort that God offers us to the rest of the world so they can look at us and say, They read the same news that I do. They watch the same shows. They go to the same social media sites that I do. And they aren't afraid. This is what we're called to do. We are called to extend to others the same comfort that we have received. And so, as your pastor, and as a Christian who is often afraid, I invite you to think through the message of Jesus, that whether it's coronavirus or Ebola or MERS or SARS, whatever the, you know, the, the, the Delta variant, the Mu variant, whatever the next variant's going to be, whatever it is, we as Christians are called to not be afraid. Let's pray. Loving God, We thank you for the grace you have shed on us even in this dark time. We pray for everybody who's involved in the provision of health care in our country and around the world. We pray for wisdom in questions like booster vaccines and and, um, uh, alternative treatments, all the things that we keep hearing about, Lord. We pray that you would give wisdom to those who make decisions and for those of us who ask for those decisions to be made. Help us to take your yes for an answer. Even if it's not the yes we were hoping for. And Lord, let us be a model of faith. Let us live out our faith in a way that people can look at us and say, I want what they have. We pray all these things to Christ our Lord. Amen.